just going to make another adjustment. Is that better? Free hearing aids with PRSI at Specsavers. Music to your ears. Find out more online. Terms and conditions apply. You're very welcome to the Football Talking Tour podcast with Senior Times. My name's Aon. And I am Gary. He was the man who put the ball in the England net. He was also the man who put the ball in the Italian net. Uh, he has scored two of the most iconic goals in the history of Irish soccer or even Ireland, the country itself. Everyone remembers where they were and not too many people can have that said about them. It is a great privilege, therefore, and pleasure for Aon and myself to introduce today's guest, the very great Ray Houghton. You're welcome, Ray. Pleasure. Thanks, lads. Ray, I presume that you have never, ever been allowed to forget about those two goals. I tell you what, Gary, it's... Uh... I'm 60 now. My birthday was in January of 60. So it's been a long time, you know, since I uh, scored the, the goals that you mentioned there. But I never get tired when I come to Ireland where people remind me about where they were and, and things that happened. I've been blamed for people throwing things at TVs, TVs being thrown in the air, uh, people going out and proposing to their partner, uh, all sorts of shenanigans that have gone on. Uh, and I'm delighted to be part of it because it's part of a great history and there was a great time to play for the Irish national team. Ah, yeah, of course. And, you know, uh, th there are, as I say, not too many other people who can have that kind of thing said about them, possibly, you know, John F. Kennedy and, <laughs> and a few others. So you're, oh. in, you're in good company. Uh, can I ask you, uh, do you actually remember scoring those goals or is it a bit of a blur to you? No, um, I didn't I, I think throughout my career I didn't score many goals I always say boys I was a provider I was, I was an assistant of goals not a goal scorer um, I do remember them yeah and fondly as well I think you never forget your first you know your first love your first kiss whatever it may be and Mings was my first international goal for Ireland and that was against England you know I'd waited a long time to get my first goal but it was a memorable one because it was against the old enemy it was in the first uh, championship that Ireland had qualified for in the first game you know and to beat your great rivals England who let's be honest no one outside of Ireland gave us a chance uh, we believed in ourselves that, that's what shows a squad and Jack believed in us as a manager but uh, you know that goal uh, was absolutely incredible and the, the one against Italy was a little bit different in the sense that um, going into the into the first game, I didn't think I was going to play. You know, Jason McAteer had come into the squad quite late on, and and Jason had done well in the the, the warm up friendlies, uh, and it looked like he might be you know given a, a starting position. But I, I trained really well before I went. I trained really well when I was in a when I was in America, and it was actually Kevin Moore, and believe it or not, who came to me and said, "I think Jack's going to pick you." And I said, no, I don't think so, I don't think so. And he said, yeah, you've trained really well. You look like you've got your confidence back and you look like you're doing what you've been doing previously. Uh, I think you'll pick you. And he did. Uh, and then, you know, to to score in the manner that I did and then to be, end up being the winning goal was incredible. Which well, definitely didn't lose too much, that's for sure. 
Well, that was, a, a, you know, an unbelievable moment, an explosion. You could feel it. Uh, you could feel the entire country going up in a powder keg of kind of, uh, of, de of, of delight. I know you also got one other goal uh, that is slightly forgotten, but very nearly got us to uh, the World Cup in 1998 when I think against Belgium in the playoff and you scored for us a, a very important goal that night as well. Well, I wasn't renowned for my heading, but I actually scored two goals with my head for Highland, and that was one of them against Belgium. But you know what, remind, what I remind more, what reminds me more, shall I say, about that game, more than the goal, is the fact that Ian Hart didn't pass to me when we were 2-1 down. That still greets with me to this day. I was on the edge of the box, and I'm screaming at Hart to square it, because I was in a better position. And I mean, he, for some unknown reason, thought he was going to score a worldie from an impossible angle. And I can still now remember that moment when I'm screaming at him and I gave him some abuse afterwards for not passing to me in the edge of the box because I thought I was in a better position to disqualify right. and if we'd have got back to two, it would have been massive. Right, so that one pops up in your dreams more uh, than the other year. Yeah, okay. I mean, what's remarkable for me, Ray, is that like you were 37 when you scored that goal against Belgium. You were 34 when you scored the goal against um, against Italy. Your international career started when you were 26. So hey, you, hey, Ian, hey, um, I don't want you to put age. Uh, I don't want you to put more age on me. Actually, sorry, I was, only, I was only I was only 32 when I scored against. When I scored against Italy, and I was oh, uh, I have my I have my stats completely wrong. Then thirty-two yeah, against was, Italy. All right, okay, sorry. I was well, then two, and I was thirty-five against. Uh, I think it was thirty-five. Thirty-five. Okay, sorry. Two, two, two years more than. Uh, geez, there's my teaching <laughs> background coming back to haunt me. Anyway, I, the point I was going to make really is that um, you were um. Uh, you were a, a kind of a, a late starter to international football, okay? I mean, your your background is interesting because obviously born in Scotland, born in Glasgow, you have an Irish dad, uh, you have quite a Scottish upbringing. You then moved to England uh, as a relatively young boy. And then, but your interaction with the Scottish setup, uh, I've, I've heard you talk about, you know, the Scottish setup being sort of uh, having an attitude towards you because you were English-based, which wasn't very, um, which wasn't very favourable. Andy Roxburgh wasn't very favourable towards you. So you never really got any international uh, Scottish uh, call-up, even though you're performing quite well, even though you're winning the League Cup with, with Oxford in, in 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 '86. So when the Irish um, when the Irish opportunity came your way, was it something that you just you you jumped at without any hesitation, uh, or was it something that you, that you wanted to consider for a little bit? Well, <clears throat> what happened was was um, we played Aston Villa in the first leg of the uh, the League Cup semi final at Villa Park. And Jack was there to see John Aldridge because uh, he heard that John had a, a grandmother or grandparent from Ireland. So he, he was uh, able to play for the Republic. So after the game, he spoke to John. Um, and then he, there was some uh, journalists there. And I think they had told Jack that my dad was from uh, Bunkrana, from Donegal. So he came over to me and said, look, I hear your dad's from, from Donegal. Um, our first game is coming up in a few months' time against um, against Wales. I'd like you to be part of it. <clears throat> so I said to him, would you give me some time? As I've gone, I've got two older brothers. I'd like you to talk it through with them and with my dad and just give me a, a few few days to think it through. He went, not a bother. Well, I got home at half past two the next morning after the game. And at 9.30 in the morning, the phone went and it was Jack Chalm. And he said, what's your answer? And I said, well, I'm to the couple of days you were going to give me to think it over. <laughs> and he said, I can't wait. I want your answer now. And I said, Jack, I'd love to join you. So it was a matter of 
with, within 12 hours and made this the decision to uh, to represent the Republic of Ireland. That's how quick it was. And, and what your upbringing in Glasgow with your dads, would it have been particularly Irish? Yeah. Or, my, my, or yeah, not? My, my grand came over from, uh, from Bunkrana and brought my dad over when they were very young. My dad actually went back with my mum uh, when they were engaged to see if they could live over there, but it just wasn't for my mum. And they came back um, and, and made home there. But yeah, going to see Granny. Granny was the uh, the, the real person in charge. Um, you know, most with Sundays we'd go over to see her or, or the, all the family because my dad had, I think, it was six sisters and one brother. Something like that. It was a, it was a huge family, so um, it was important to keep in touch with everyone. But it was a, a very much an Irish Catholic background. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. And within six months, or, or or very soon on in your Ireland career, you're playing against Scotland. How did that feel? Um, well, the first game was at Lansdowne Road. We drew nil all. And it, yeah. It, it was a pretty drab affair, to be honest. Not a great deal happened. I think there was much more going to Glasgow for the, re- the second game when we beat them 1-0 when Mark Lawrence and Scott... Mm-hmm. I've got to say there was... I, I wouldn't have liked to have been doing that today with the social media because I think uh, it would have been even worse than it was then I mean there was a few newspaper articles and one thing or another about uh, you know, maybe a Judas or something along those lines for turning my back on Scotland they're going to play for Ireland but my stock answer to that was Scotland never ever asked me and you're quite right about when I went for a trial when I was 18 yeah. uh, and it was uh, at Largs the Scotland training headquarters and it was the worst week I had I mean it was, it was awful and you're quite right, we did get treated badly. There was, I think it was five lads from English clubs and it was you Anglos go over there. You know, it, it, it wouldn't happen today, but that was the attitude. You Anglos make up a little team of your own, um, which always sat with me. And I actually told Andy Roxborough when he was Scotland manager and he came to watch Liverpool train and he said, why didn't you play for us? And I said, it was because of you and what you've done. So and what, what did he say him. to that? What did he say he, to that? He didn't say a great deal, to be honest, Gary. Um, he probably... <laughs> Listen, he probably wouldn't have remembered. A lot probably went on in his life uh, during and you know during them years uh, from when it happened to when I was at Liverpool. But listen, I always reflect and you say what was the best decisions that you made, and joining Ireland certainly was one of them. Um, but going back to that Scotland game, I remember one of the things Liam Brady had said to me, and Liam to this day, and I was playing golf with him the other day. Uh, I was think he's been a great mentor to me. He was my favourite Irish player of all time. I listened to Liam a great deal because I think he was worldly wise when it came to football. You know, that going to Italy in the manner that he did, everything that he'd done with his career was superb. So I would listen to him and I think he had a, a passion and a drive to play for his country. And I think that I wanted to show that as well when I played. I wanted to have the same drive and passion for playing. Uh, and I got that through Liam. But I remember Liam saying to me, I think we played Belgium, which was the first uh, big game we played in the group stage. Yeah. We played him away. And he said, look, you've had a few friendlies. This is a big game. It's about time you started to play to your potential, to start playing well. And for most people, they would have went, oh, and sat back and you know maybe took umbrage to it and thought, you know, he's been a bit harsh here. But I took it as a compliment that he took the time out to speak to me and to try and you know, say, look, listen, you can play, start showing what you're about. And when it came to fruition was when we beat Scotland 1-0, he came onto the pitch and picked me up and he said, 
now you can play international football. Right. So I remember that, 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 that game was a huge and pivotal moment in the in the Jack Charlton sort of era, um, and it galvanised, I think, uh, that the, the entire country. I presume it galvanised the team as well. It, it, it was. If you ask all the players, and I spoke to Frank Stapleton and others about this, that was the game. That was the turning mm. point where we really believed that we were a very good side and tough to play against. It's just the way that, I mean, don't forget, I think it was on the, we played on the Wednesday, on the Tuesday, Jack told Ronnie Whelan he was going to be playing left bank. He yeah. told Paul McGrath he was going to be playing right back. And we were like, what? Yeah. What are you doing? But Jack had a plan in place to stop their wingers. Yeah. Who, we were, who were in devastating forward, David Cooper in particular. And Big Paul didn't give him a kick. And I think at some stage, David Cooper came off because he just couldn't get involved in the game. But that was the moment, that was the match for me. And I think for virtually all the players, when they reflect on it, that was the game that was a turning point that we believed that we could do something in the coming years under Jack. Well, it's just as well that you weren't picked for Scotland in the 86 World Cup because for all sorts of reasons, uh, from Ireland's perspective, but from Scotland's, they didn't have a very good World Cup. In fact, uh, I'm sure you may remember, Ray, Ian St. John going absolutely apoplectic with rage about the Scotland performance. I think it was against uh, Uruguay or Denmark. I can't, can't quite remember. But it, it didn't work out. It didn't work out well. And there was a little bit of controversy as well because it didn't... Alan Hansen didn't go, Ferguson didn't pick Alan Hansen and so on. Yeah, well, the problem had been prior to the uh, Gary, where Jockstein had passed away. Jock was the, the manager and obviously losing him. Uh, and then Sir Alex coming in on a temporary basis to take over the, the, the squad. I mean, remember, he was, he, he was, he was a, I think, obviously, he was a Man United, I think, at that stage, wasn't he? If memory serves me. I Aberdeen or Manchester United. So he was in charge then of um you know of, of of the the domestic team and scotland was just a side issue for him if mm. you like so it was tough for him and tough for a lot of a lot of people but yeah no they didn't perform which can happen you can get in there with the, the best of intentions and it doesn't quite work out but you've got to you know go there with the thought that you're going to do well uh, and certainly we when we qualified in 88 when you look at who we were up against england who everyone thought they were going to win it as they normally do in every competition they go into. Uh, but USSR as they were and the great players that they had and obviously Holland. And when you look at what the Dutch had uh, and their players at that stage, they were an unbelievable side. So that was a massive group to try and get out of. And remember, the, you know, there was only one that went for one that went for, or I think two or two went through from each group in the semi-final. It yeah. was tough. It was a real tough ask. And, and nobody, I mean, expected anything of us. I remember that period. In fact, we had own hand on this podcast a few weeks ago, and he said at the end of the qualifying campaign for for European Championships that he got a phone call from the FAI to say, Charlton's not working out, the attendances aren't great, he's having too many arguments with too many players, uh, and uh, the football's terrible, and we're thinking of moving on. And would you come back? That's what own hand says to us. And then, of course, Scotland beat Bulgaria. Ireland topped the group. Ireland goes to European Championships, and everything er, everything changes. As uh, as somebody sort of you know playing in England and and a little bit sort of uh, divorced from 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 what's happening in Ireland, were you aware as players and particularly like you as somebody with an Irish background growing up in Glasgow, of 
of what that game did beating England. I mean, a lot of, in our tour, we talk about the GEA in Ireland, how soccer was looked down upon. If you played soccer, you weren't considered to be particularly Irish. The attitude of the Christian brothers in schools to, to playing uh, soccer for overgated games. I mean, Liam Brady, you mentioned him there. He was effectively expelled from school for playing soccer. Dave Langan speaks about being, you know, given six of the best in front of the entire uh, school assemble, assembly for being uh, caught playing soccer. John Giles said that when he left school, he felt he wasn't even Irish because of the attitude of the Christian brothers. I mean, that's a lot of history, a lot, a lot of weighing on your on your young shoulders when you're out playing for Ireland against England. Were you aware of how much it meant for the Irish team to beat England oh, in, yeah, in 88? Absolutely. You were? Oh, absolutely, yeah, of course we were. I mean, you've you got to remember, you know, and this is us going to our first major tournament. You know, so it was all fresh and new to us. We, none of us knew what we were doing. You know, from the moment we got on the plane to go over to, to Germany, it was just an adventure. You know, we were really looking forward to what, what was going to come our way, but we knew we had some really tough games. And we weren't used to the travelling or the fact that you were going to play three games in eight days. We hadn't done that before. So this this was something that, that we all had to get used to. And then, you know, moving from Stuttgart to Hanover and then Hanover, obviously, down to Gelsenkirchen for the third game. And these things that we hadn't done before. So for us, it was, it, was, it was something that we were all really looking forward to. But it was Jack. Jack was the driving force. He kept, you know, putting across to us, we're good players, we've got a good shape about us, we're hard to play against, the pressure's on them. Pressure's all on England. You know, whenever tournament England were going into that stage, they're going to win it. That was the attitude of the English media. And we knew that with the squad that we had, because we play against these boys. A lot of our players played against, played alongside the yeah. likes of Peter Beasley, John Barnes. We played against all these lads. We knew them. We knew what they were like. And we knew how uh, we could stop them as well. And we rode our luck against England, there's no doubt. England had chances in the second half. But, you know, it was our, it was our day. We had a little bit of luck that went our way in. Um, you know, we we just worked extremely hard. It was tough condition. But the Irish fans, after, I remember Mick Byrne. I think Mick Byrne celebrated it more than the players. I mean, Mick was, you know, he was just, you know, he had an, he had an affection and affiliation with the fans. Yeah. Because he was a fan and he, they loved him and he loved them. And I remember going behind the goal with Mick and he, he had his hands out saying, we did it for you today. I mean, it was as if he scored the winning goal. You know, as he was the man, and I loved that. I loved that about. There's, there's a great clip of um, there's a great clip of Mick before the game getting off the bus with a bag of gear, yeah. and he shouts over the bus, "We'll do them for you today!" And the place, yeah. you know, everybody starts start, starts roaring. <laughs> I think as an Irish kid, like I was, have been twelve when that happened, Ray, and it was. I always remember it was such a magic moment. I remember your header. I remember. I remember it looping under. I remember saying to myself, "Jesus Christ, that's going in," uh, it looping under the bar. Uh, but for for people in Ireland and growing up in Ireland, you, you just there's a few things you you know you, you got used to. Unemployment was high, emigration was high, the troubles in Northern Ireland, and our soccer team was going to be a bit crap. And then you know this was the expectation level we had of being Irish at the, in, in those days. And then for us to beat England on that stage, it kind of blew my little mind as a twelve year old of what we could be and what we could achieve. And then of course what happened with you know, the well, fantastic the, goal against against Russia. The, and was qualifying for the well, the, the wheeling goal against Russia started to, to bring that on to a yeah. kind of Walt Disney level, yeah. and it, you just you were just kind of going, "Hang on a sec, this yeah. doesn't happen to yeah. this Irish country." Irish people don't do this, yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. And uh, and that, well, Ireland played very well against uh, against Russia, as you remember, uh, Ray. Uh, and there was a lot of 
shall we say, on the deck football played that night. Was that a plan that Jack had, or 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 how did that happen? No, it, it was never a plan. Um, Jack was very much of the opinion, lads, that he didn't want you playing the ball from the defence into midfield. That was an absolute mm. no-no. But see, when you were in the final third, you could do what you want. You could take on six players and mess it up. He didn't care. But in that uh, defensive third, midfield third, don't give the ball away. Don't, his words were, don't put the ball at risk. That's what you used to emphasise all the time, game after game after game. But in that final third, go and do what you want. Go and express yourself. But we played really well that night. And I've got to be honest with you, when I reflect back on it, the referee, he had an absolute nightmare because yeah. there was at least four penalty decisions yeah. against the Russian side that should have been, at least one of them, at least one should have been given. It was a stonewall penalty uh, and he didn't give it. And then Tony Garvin, the last Tony, 15 yeah. minutes, they, they equalised. It was a great performance and after beating England, to play in the way that we did, to get the result that we did, to take it into the third game was uh, was was comforting for, for all of us. And what was the sort of mentality going into that third game? Because obviously it was Holland and, you know, Gullit, Van Basten, Rijkaard, etc. Uh, was there a belief that you could do it or was there a sense of a kind of cumulative tiredness at this point? Uh, and that you were playing, uh, you know, an outstanding team, and that it was going to be very difficult. Or did you ab- did you absolutely go in thinking we can do this? I, I I thought we could do it. Could I don't think we were all a hundred percent, and I do think we were feeling tired. Yeah, I'll go back to you boys that we weren't used to playing three games mm. at international level in the space of eight days with the travelling in between. The others probably had. You know, the others have been to, probably been to World Cups and other competitions. And they were used to that situation. We weren't. So I think come the third game, we were feeling it a little bit. I remember speaking to Kevin Lauren about it, and he just said, look, put it to the back of your mind. You'll be fine. You'll get through it. Um, And we try to do that. But a bit like Scotland was again changing moment when we we won that. Paul McGrath, when he hit the header, it just went wide to the post. That was a game-changing moment. Because I think if we had scored then we would have at least got a draw in that game which would have taken us through didn't Jack say I think remember his words where he says we, we've read our qualification that's what he said uh, when that when, when that header went wide meaning we've had our luck we've qualified and this is as far as we're going to get I always remember he said that yeah. well I mean you think of the how unlucky we were with them Keefe's um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Up, yeah. Up, up. Nice to put the flag up. Yeah, I remember yeah. all this. I remember. Thank you very much. If you ever see that again, the shot was going. It looked like it was going five yards wide, and then the spin on it took it back yeah. into the goal. Never seen anything like it. Never I had. I had seen something like it once, and I'll tell you when it happened, Ray. In, Is this with the hotel? The I know, it happened in our back in garden in 1972 <laughs> when when I was going to beat um, the team my older brother was on. We were And and their ball spun in, and I can it's tell exactly you... exactly the same. Uh, it my, is of a level. My mother was... Uh, was my reaction was such that uh, it, when it happened to you guys for Ireland, the pain of... 72 came back to me really <laughs> Gary does a great Scottish accent actually by the way Ray his, ma- his mother is from Scotland so uh, my mother was indeed she was from Scotland whereabouts in Scotland was your was your uh, mother from uh, we were from uh, originally 
uh, down the gobbles. Okay. Down the gobbles. Uh, and then I moved to uh, Chateau Olay, as we call it. Wow. Yeah. And when you were in the gobbles, you didn't know a young Jim Kerr, did you? Uh, no, I, I I wasn't born in the golf with my my mum and my dad. Okay, oh, oh sorry, okay. And my two older brothers, but then I moved to, as I said, it's actually called Castlemilk, which was one of the. the that's roughest. where they all come from. That's where they, that's James McCarty comes from Castlemilk, I think. Yeah, well, yeah. Arthur Graham, who played for Scotland in the tenement building I lived in, I lived in the bottom uh, flat, and he lived in the top one. Arthur, who played for Leeds, Manchester United in Scotland. He's about seven or eight years older than me. But we grew up, the families grew up together. We had a big field. We called it the back. And then we used to play out there about 50 a side. And it didn't matter if you were five or 65. Um, you were allowed to play. But when you're five, you learn how to go out of the way of the big boys because they were going to take you out regardless of your age. <laughs> and, and that was a big Irish sort of Catholic community there. Pat Nevin talks about his upbringing in, in Glasgow as well. Celtic supporters, uh, supporters all, all that kind of thing. He says oh. when he played against, against Ireland in that game in Hampden Park, his dad was delighted with the 1-0 win for Ireland. <laughs> Such was the, the split loyalty. It was a yeah, bit unusual. Well, all the Grahams came to me. Like, uh, there's Tom Graham, James Graham. Uh, Elaine Graham all the Grahams came Margaret there's loads of them came down because they were Scotland fans but they came to see me as well you know I'd, uh, I'd, I'd left when I was 10 nearly 11 so there was a lot of people who you know unfortunately we, we moved for economic reasons that there was yeah. nothing up there for us and for my mum and dad to bring you know their kids down to try and give them a better a better living was the reason why we did that um, so we still had all this group back there and they were coming to the game supporting Scotland but at the same time wishing me well and I seen them afterwards I came out after the match to see them all and obviously they're a bit glum that Scotland had been beaten but they were happy for me uh, Ray you played uh, football you started off playing I think with West Ham as a, as a junior is that right? Mm-hmm. Three and, years there yeah and what was what was that like growing up as a as a young trainee soccer player well, it must have been a tough and by the way did your uh, games out in the back at 50 aside <laughs> 65 year olds <laughs> uh, was that was that a kind of a, a bit of a, a training for the the, the Gary, harshness I, I learned so much Gary from playing mm. in that back <laughs> and mm-hmm. how you know you go out the way of a, t- a challenge when the yeah. older boys are don't you win the ball because they didn't care what your age was they were going into you to, to, to win it <laughs> Um, but I mean, I was at Arsenal, um, so I played for uh, Islington Boys. So the area where I went to school was Islington, which is mm. a district in London. Mm. So I played for Islington Boys, and part of the deal was you went to Arsenal's training uh, behind uh, Highbury. They had a, a, a big indoor facility. It was an ash pitch, and you would train there on either a Tuesday or a Thursday night. And I went there for about two years. Um, the thing was, I never grew. I was very small for my age. I was very, uh, very slight and was getting nowhere. So it wasn't really till I was about 16, I started to fill out a little bit. And even then I was still only about eight stone, nine stone wet through. And it was a it was a, a friend of mine, Dennis Phillips, who played in the same Islington team as, as me. He got uh, scouted by a, a, a fella called Bruce McClellan from uh, West Ham and Bruce couldn't believe how good he was his nickname was Mac I'll, I'll use Mac it's easier for him and Mac couldn't believe how good Dennis was and he wasn't with the club and completely out of the blue he said to Dennis is there anyone else like you 
And he said, well, funny enough, I've got a pal who I played with, Ray Houghton. He said, he's not playing with anyone. Have a look. Sponsored by Expressway. With My Expressway, free travel pass holders can reserve their seats online at expressway.ie or at our ticket machines in stations. Think you're not smart enough to own a smartphone? Well, think again and think Doro. Doro phones are designed specially with the older person in mind. They're easy to use with louder sound and larger text. Plus numerous state-of-the-art features that don't compromise on performance or quality. To learn more about the full range of high-tech Doro phones, visit doro.ie. Doro phones. Make friends with innovation. If you're enjoying this podcast, why not subscribe to Senior Times? Visit the website at seniortimes.ie and like us on Facebook. Match invited me along to West Ham. I went training there on a Tuesday and a Thursday. I was actually working for JB Whiskey at the time, uh, distributing whiskey to North America. I used to do all the invoices and bills of laden. That was my job, which I absolutely hated. And then I was there for six months doing that. And West Ham said they want to sign me on as a pro. Uh, a one-year deal, £70 a week, and I jumped in it. And uh, it was a great decision for me. And can I ask you, something that's always struck me, Ray, like, there's so many young flips who are very talented uh, and, you know, professional sport is just a hard place to be. What kind of qualities do you have to have as a, as a young, basically a teenager, to, to start mixing it and getting on in that environment? Well, well I, can, I can tell you from experience, Gary, I've got an older brother, Ken, and he was a far better player than me. Technically, brilliant on the ball, lovely left foot, go and beat you, bring it back, nutmeg you, cross, shoot, score, create goals, brilliant. But probably didn't have my temperament, didn't have my attitude, and I think they're the things you look at. It's not always about who's got the best ability, it's yeah. about who can adapt, who, who, who can go in there with the right attitude, who's fully committed, who gives it 100%. And I've played against players of my age group, 15, who were far better than me, 15, but they got no better. Whereas I started to improve the more I trained, the more I understood what the game was about. But that's, it's, it's your football intelligence, football mm. knowledge. And it's not just about ability. Okay, because you were a player with, obviously with a lot of ability, a lot, a lot of ball playing uh, ability and, and ability to score big goals and big matches. Now you went on to Liverpool in 87 and played in what it amounts to me is possibly the one of the greatest club sides ever, only uh, you, you couldn't play in Europe obviously because of the ban, but that must have been an incredibly special time for you to play in that environment. Well, when you're at West Ham, I'll, I'll just give you a little feedback. So I was at West Ham for three years. My last year at West Ham, I was playing in the reserves and I scored 19 goals from midfield. 19. And I got released at the end of the season. So there I am going in. So what would happen in the last Thursday of, or the second or third Thursday in May, you'd find out if you're going to be kicked on for the following season. So there was about eight of us waiting in the office at West Ham and John Lyle was the manager. We're all getting called in one by one. I'm first one in. The other seven players are there saying, Ray, don't take all the money. And I'm saying to them, lads, I don't know if I'm going to take a two-year deal or a three-year deal. I'm going to go for X, Y, and Z when it comes to money, but I'll leave you a few quid. I go in there and the first words were, 
we think you're a good player, but we're going to let you go. Well, he must, he may as well have been talking another language to me up there. Oh. I hadn't a clue what he was saying. Even to the extent where I went in the following day and I, we used to get a pink form from the PFA. <clears throat> and that was to tell you that you were available, that you were being released by your club. So David Cross was our man in charge, uh, PFA representative. So I asked him for the pink form and David Cross keeps saying, right, go away. You, you've got a contract. These other lads are looking to secure the futures. Stop asking for a form. And in the end, I pleaded with him. And he went, you are joking me. He's letting you go. So about five of the senior team went to see John Lyle and said, I think you're making a mistake. You should keep him. Um, so that spurred me on, uh, certainly, to go on. And then when you reach, reach Liverpool, you know, the, which, is, which for me was the ultimate, um, it was incredible. But it was a weird club, I've got to say to you. Even from signing, from my medical, which was, I wouldn't call it a medical, uh, the fact that we didn't have a full-time physio, you know, to see what they were like then to where they are now, it's, just, it's, it's incredible. So you're talking about Liverpool? Yeah, we didn't have a Re full-time physio. <laughs> really? Uh, really? Uh, okay, so okay, so you used the words, it was, I think, a weird club? A weird or, club, yeah. Uh, so... So, so you've slightly taken Expand me Expand on that, uh, Mr. Howard. You've slightly <laughs> taken me right, back. I'll give, you, I'll give you an example. So on a, on a Friday morning, you'd have to have teen biscuits, right? So there was two packets of biscuits. So it'd be a plain, ordinary packet of McVitie's biscuits, which Steve McMahon had to open. No one else could open them. And there was a, pa a packet of milk chocolate McVitie's biscuits, which Kenny DeGleish would open. And if, if you ever open this up, seriously, if you open up, you'll get at one end of the biscuit, you'll get two bits of biscuit together. And at the other bit, you'll get two bits of chocolate together. Kenny, if he opened up the two bits of chocolate with the bottom, he'd have to turn the packet round and open it the other way. And that was the reason why we were going to beat the opposition the next day. Wow. So, so hold up, Ray, if you had wandered in on a Friday morning and just sort of not, not known these rules and opened up the packet of uh, whatever, would you oh, have gotten yeah. in trouble for it? Or like, what would have happened? Right, I'll give you another example. Hang on. Right, so yeah. my first my first game at home, I go in to have a pre-match meal at 12 o'clock, and it was a big table at the Moat House Hotel, and the lad, I didn't know where to sit, so the lad said, sit in the chair. So I sit in the chair, my uh, pre-match meal comes up, scrambled egg and beans toast, so I'm eating away, and I can sense, I've got six cents, something's wrong, and I can't, the lads are giggling, laughing, even the coaching staff are laughing, I can't work out what it is. And then the doors open, in walks Kenny Dugleish, walks over to me and says, you're sitting in my chair. I've just joined the club. What do I do? All the lads are saying to me, you know, they're all whispering under their breath, he'll leave, he'll leave, he'll leave. Even the coaches were saying that, and I'm thinking, what am I going to do here? So I thought, to save face, I'm going to sit in the chair. Oh, dear. And Kenny looks at me and he went, are you sure? And I said, yep, yeah, I'm going to sit here. He went, all right. We got to the ground, he names the team, he went, sub, you, don't ever sit in my chair again. Wow. That's Liverpool for you. <laughs> so and, I, was, I was going to ask... Like, and was it his chair? It was, <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, was, I was going to be sub anyway, but it was just, you know, the emphasis... Just winding you up. That's, that was how they were. You know, everything... You know, you, I, where I live, I used to have to pass the training ground to go to the ground to get on a coach to go back to the training ground. Afterwards, go back to the to the ground to get changed, drive past the training ground to go home. I couldn't drive to the training ground. You weren't allowed. You had to go by bus. 
I was going to, I was going to ask like was playing for Liverpool at such a high professional standard like and then coming over to play for Ireland and the, and the overgrown uh, grass of Leicester Road a bit of a dip for you? Sounds like it must have been a release from that message. <laughs> it was I was just nothing. I mean, it was it was things I was never used to, you know. And but the, these were the uh, the habits that they had. These were the things that they'd done week in week out um, and you just got used to it it was just something you could use. but for me I was used to go up with my wife and saying what is going on I just didn't I, I couldn't understand it and why did they have these kind of uh, these slightly arcane rules it sounds like um it sounds like a <laughs> sounds like a cult. <laughs> well, they wanted, the reason for the reason for the bus was they wanted you to stick together. They wanted okay. you to stick together. That was what it was all about. Ah, that right. Training, okay. To talk about what happened in training, that was what it was all about. Yeah. Okay, because there's also a strong sense at Liverpool as well that that, and I've heard this several occasions from several different people that, particularly with Kenny Dalglish, like. The, the, and in fact, Graham Sunis has a story about Ronnie Moran as well. That you know, when you were there, you didn't ask what you want, what you, what you wanted, what he, the manager wanted you to do. You just you were expected to be able to just go and do it. Isn't that right? Yeah, yeah very much. I think Graham tells a story about when he first came from Middlesbrough and mm. when I told him what uh, they wanted from him, and I think it was just the day before he went and asked. I think it was Joe Fagan alongside uh, Ronnie. And said, you know, would you would you want me to do? And they said, we paid four hundred thousand pounds for you, and you want us to tell you how you play football? Just right. go and do what you've been doing. But Ron, I, I remember going through uh, a spell at Liverpool where things weren't going well. I couldn't couldn't get my pass and go or whatever it was. And Ronnie just said to me something very very simple, succinct, which just pass to the nearest Liverpool player, Ray. Just get your confidence back. Doesn't matter if he's a yard away, three yards away, five yards away. He says, and your confidence will come back very quickly. And I remember thinking at the time when he said that, I'm not sure about that. But you know what? He was 100% mm. right. Within five minutes of passing it short, when it came to me, I had the confidence to play the ball over the top to pick out one of the lads that made a run forward. And that was just the little little nuggets of wisdom that they had uh, at, yeah. at, at the club and, and just settled you down. They knew you could play, but there were times you just need cajoled into doing something. Mm. It, it may be harder for younger listeners to understand like the, 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 the standard of player we had uh, when you were playing, playing at the, the top English clubs. We had, you know, yourself, Steve Staunton, Ronnie, Mo- Ronnie Whelan playing for Liverpool. We had players at Manchester United, players at Spurs, players at, at Everton. Kevin Sheedy couldn't get in the team and he was a, a league winner with a, uh, uh, with Everton um, you ha- you in, in 89 of course Hillsborough happens Ray and that's a that's a massive uh, impact on Liverpool a tightening neck club so many people have died um, it's it's a huge tragedy Ireland are playing Spain uh, yourself and, 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 and Ronnie Whedon come over to play the game uh, and, and John Aldridge just, just just couldn't get his head around it and couldn't play. I remember your performance that day against Spain being absolutely outstanding. Absolutely outstanding. Do you remember that period? Was it all a bit of a haze? Uh, uh, did football seem almost irrelevant to you after so many people had passed away at an, an FA Cup semi-final? Uh, or in those instances, does football become more important because it is a release for people? No, uh, only. I've got to be honest with you, if, if they were said to all of us at that particular moment, the season was over, we would have said thanks very much because we were in no place right. to play. <clears throat> you know, our heads were not on football at all. You know, we were coming down to the training, to the ground. Uh, families were coming down there to talk about their loved ones that had passed and what the club meant to them. And they just wanted to be in that 
that area, if you like, or in that stadium, because that's what their family members love to go and watch their team play at home and, and away. Uh, and they felt, I don't know, they felt at ease there. You know, obviously, there's so much going on in their lives and, you know, the, the, the people who had passed away. And then, obviously, we were going to the funerals and they were trying to organise that where certain players were going to certain funerals day after, it was virtually day after day after day at that particular time. So we had no interest in training, no interest in playing. Um, and then sort of we were, you know, the, the the league decided that we were going to come back. You know, the FA Cup was to be replayed. Um, international football was going on. Um, and you're quite right. I think it hit John being a scouser more than the most. Uh, yeah. I live near John. You know, John and I lived within 200 yards of each other, and uh, he was absolutely devastated. We were all devastated for different reasons, but I think it hit home more to John because it was mm. it was his own, if you like. You know, he would have known people, um, so that was why he couldn't face playing at that particular time. And it was a real struggle. It was a struggle for all of us. None of us wanted to play. And uh, from from your own perspective, like how does one like you're not a professional counsellor here a footballer so how, how do you deal with you know just the sheer awfulness and grieving and sorrow of the people Eric I, I don't know how we done it I've got to be honest with you we had no there was no counsellors coming in to help us but I can remember I mean it's obviously it's, it's really I can't remember I can't remember I, I just remember players and the wives coming in girlfriends and just sitting in uh, an Anfield Families coming in, sitting down, just wanting to talk to you about football and just listening, talking about Liverpool, the club, about the seat, whatever it may be. Whatever people wanted to talk about, we'd listen and respond. But we had no... I can't remember any councillors coming in to council us. And certainly we've had nothing afterwards either. So uh, it was very much a matter of, you know, suck it and see what was going on. We didn't know what was happening. We just reacted to or acted on what was going on. It must have been unbelievably difficult for you yeah. guys to... to Because, I mean, the skills that you have as uh, to cope on a football pitch, uh, I mean, some of them are transferable to life, I presume, but but not, not that but kind you, of but thing. But you're still so, you're so, such young men. I mean, at the time, you know, when you're the same age, maybe you don't realise it. But, like, now, later in your life, you must, you must reflect on you were in your mid-20s. Yeah. You just witnessed something catastrophic. And then all this pressure is on you to do the right thing, say the right thing, to be in the right place as a very young man. I don't think, I don't think it was pressure. I don't no. think we were pressured into do it. We'd done it because we thought it was the right thing to do. Um, but I remember seeing photographs of, you know, people who had actually been down to the grounds for autographs. You know, that was where they would come. They wouldn't go to the training ground. They wouldn't be, they weren't allowed in. It was like, as I say, it was a no-go area. We couldn't get in there as, as players in your own car. Yeah, you'd come in the coach. So anyone who wanted an autograph always came to the ground. So when you came out after training, they'd be there waiting and, you know, you'd duly sign whatever you were asked to do. So some of the images that we've seen were of people who had been down to the ground not that long before up against the fence. And, and when you see that and it, how graphic it is, very hard to, to understand. And, and then you start reflecting on why did we have fencing up? I mean, yeah. had football got that bad that you had to fence people in, cage them in? I mean, is that where, where we'd gone? I mean, shouldn't people have been looking out for this better than the ad or better, you know, decision-making about 
what they should have had around grounds. Uh, I mean, it's easy uh, hindsight afterwards. But I remember that night after it happened, watching uh, Match of the Day when they had a big uh, story on it. And I remember the fence, and that was the first thing that came into my, into my head is, God, how football has gone that you, you're caging people in in the manner that, that they did. But another, another thing that really... When you know it comes home to you, is one of the funerals that John Aldridge and I went to was always was, was of a fireman, uh, and his skills, if you like, came back because he actually went into the pen, dragged some people out, went back in again, dragged some people out. I think he went back in from maybe even went in for a third time, and it was in that third time that he got caught in the crush and lost his life. Wow! And when you're speaking to sisters and the and the family at his funeral. And they tell you that story. I mean, how do you how do you take that in? Mm. Oh, oh, I don't know. I don't know how how, how you, you you go back to to, to being a, a footballer after that, and then of course you have to be respectful to to that and, and the campaigning uh, and the search for justice in 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 those years. After that, was that important to you that that, that search for justice? I mean, I must have, I must have watched those Hillsborough, Hillsborough documentaries a hundred times as to how the families were treated, how they were demonised in the media, uh, how it became very very difficult for them to get any sense of justice. It seems to have been resolved now, and there's an absolute recognition that the none of the fans were at fault it was a policing matter but were you did you did you involve yourself in that or were you aware of that of the of, of the intervening number we, of years we were aware of it but do you know what it's only when you reflect back now you wish it, you had social media then to yeah. show exactly what was going on i mean i think social media has got its good parts and its bad parts but i think if we had it around then to show exactly what was going on we wouldn't have had to wait the years that we have to get the justice, you know, it would have been out there. What yeah. the Liverpool fans were doing, you know, breaking up hoardings around the pitch to mix shift stretches to carry people, you know, that that would have been shown. It would have been shown about how Liverpool fans were, you know, pushed into a particular area, not using the whole of the Leppings Lane, because even as we came out before the match, we could see areas that had nothing in it, and we were like, "What's going on here?" Yeah, uh, and once again, I'll go back to hindsight. If if you'd have known what was going on, you'd have done a lot of things differently. And afterwards, you know, as far as trying to help out um, the families, I don't think the players got involved as much. To be honest, we didn't know a great. I didn't know a great deal about that, and I don't think many players did. Whereas I think with social media today, it would have been highlighted a lot more, and there would have been a uh, you know a, a, a lot more people behind it and backing it to get. An, an answer, and it it took far too long yeah. for it to come out. Uh, and, for, and and even now, I don't think people have actually been held account to what actually went on. Yes. No. I suppose speaking to Ronnie Whelan, he had gone through Heisel as mm. well, but he remarked actually at the end of 89 was one of the highlights of his football career was when Ireland qualified for the World Cup. It's it's difficult maybe as fans, you you have so many uh, instances over 40 years that you'll, you'll think back to as players, it's a much uh, shorter time, uh, time spell if you like, or time span. But Ronnie speaks to that qualifying for the World Cup in Malta, the connection with the crowd. I always remember and the images of you and putting the scarf around your neck after, uh, after the game just trying to move from a very very dark moment in your career to, to maybe a very positive one was that a big moment for you the qualification for the World Cup did that mean a lot? But it doesn't get any bigger really for me the okay. biggest tournament in the world is the World Cup you know that's when all the nations come together that's your dream as a footballer to I mean I'd watched it as a kid you know so I'd seen it all I've, I've always thought you know wouldn't it be great to be part of that and for Ireland to 
qualified for 88, then back it up. And I think that was, there were a few question marks. Could we back it up, qualify for one tournament by qualifying for the next? And we'd done it in style. You know, we, we'd done it uh, we, without any real problems along the way. We played some great football, you know, we played some uh, games where we were very, very good, but it was great results. And I remember going out in Malta, and it was never in doubt, never in doubt we were going to qualify. And I'm going to say, the Irish fans out there, and with the way we were treating Malta was absolutely fantastic. And it was a great night. And, you know, your dreams come true. As you say, from the darkness, there was a little bit of light. And that light was, you know, the following season, you were going to, well, the following year, because it was 89 when we qualified, the, the most prestigious football mm. competition in the world. Um, Ray, can I ask you just stay, uh, because we're, we're sort of running out of time here. There's a couple of things I wanted to ask you, and, and they kind of tie in with 1990. Um, obviously... Okay, there's a twinkle in his eye here, uh, so, uh, so prepare yourself, Ray, for some uh, kind of... Uh, a certain... Uh, a certain uh, pundits who are generals <laughs> in RT, you think... Uh, you know who I'm talking about. Uh, and they, you know, they became utterly Mr. synonymous Mr. as well Mr. with the whole... The dream team, as you know. Now, now, uh, when there was complaints from certain quarters, we shall say, from the about RT panel, how the team was playing, uh, did, did, were you aware of that, or did you did it annoy you, or did you just go, look, it's irrelevant what you think? Well, actually, I think it started before then, didn't it? Before yeah. 1990. Um, I'm not sure that... It went into Mac 2 in 1990, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think it was in 88 or there was one competition where I think uh, Eamon had come over and uh, I think he was in, in the room when there were questions were being asked and I think some of the players got and walked out uh, and then Jack wasn't uh, wasn't sure what was going on or what had happened. And I think when he found out, then obviously he was on the player's side and against, uh, against Eamon. But look... I worked with him and Gary, you know that, you know what he's like. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I actually think he was great on TV. Personally. Oh, he, was, he, <laughs> he was certainly, he was fantastic on TV. Box no office. Question. Box office. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, no, he, he was going to say things at, at certain yeah. things. That, that was mm -hmm. Eamon's way. But me personally, I didn't take it seriously. Um, you know, I didn't take it to heart. Uh, mm. he, he might have had justification <laughs> the way we played against Egypt. <laughs> I've got to say that was the worst game I've ever played in for Ireland. Uh, I mean, yeah. That was absolute dross. But, you know, to get to uh, the last 16, uh, the, the last eight, uh, and one on penalties in the last 16 was was incredible. We got okay, right. The penalties, right? Sorry, the yeah. penalties. So, so we could. Yes. Did you want one or were you ordered to take one? No, no, I wanted. I'll tell you right. quick, this. Boys, this is a true story. Tony Cascarina was talking about this the other day. So there we are. Our guys, we, were in the, we were in the huddle and we're trying to get five penalty takers. So Kevin Sheedy and Andy Townsend, hands went up straight away, not a bother. I'd had a half-decent game and felt fairly confident. I'd never taken a penalty professionally in my life. Not one. Really? I put my hand up and I thought, I'll take one. Now we can't find two others. I'm going to tell you the huddle is now 40 yards wide. It's went from we're about we were six inches away from each other. We can't find anyone to take a penalty. Really? And then I, I said to Tony Cascarino, you're our last striker. You've got to take a penalty. And he went, no, bottle's gone, bottle's gone. I went, Cass, come on, you're a penalty ticket. You've got to take one. No, don't want one, don't want one. And I said to him, are you a man or a mouse? And he said to me, God strike me down. He went, pass me the cheese. <laughs> <laughs> Great. 
well, it wouldn't have been Billy. my choice now because I mean, if he was going to head the thing, he'd have a, probably a better chance of success than what he actually Aaron, did. If you ever see penalty again, the I goalkeeper died that he did it, and the ball yeah. went underneath him. It's yeah. one of the worst penalties ever. The keeper Silvio Long <laughs> was pretty poor. He was all over the place. I mean, were you when you, when you saw? I, mean, I think you were uh, the second up. Listen, were you, were you, you? You were the supremely confident that you're going to nail it because he was all over the shot. No, no, I no. Wasn't. Do you know what? He, he he put his hands up and his hands went over the top of the crossbar. He put his hands wide and he looked like he was touching either either post. And I'm thinking, where the hell am I going to put this? There's no room. He's, he's filling the goal. And my dad told me something, and it, it stuck with me. Pick your spot, don't change your mind. Pick right. your spot, and I kept going through my head. Pick your spot, don't put the ball down. And I swear, you won't have a look. He actually went down to about three foot three, and I could see the whole goal. And I went, if I can't beat him, there's something wrong with me. But I've got to tell you, when it hit the back of the net, there was no joy, absolutely zero joy. Pure relief. Yeah. Even though he went, on your, relief. he went on your knees and you gestured to the yeah. crowd. I went, yeah. I went like that. And that was a relief. And I looked round and I looked at Tony Cascarino and he'd gone pure white. All the blood. <laughs> <laughs> Ray, what? We've seen it so often. The, your penalties, the tension, it's unbearable even watching it at home. Even when you're not involved in it. You know, you get the countries are different countries and so on. When that lad is walking up to take that penalty, yeah. that must be the most the loneliest, most pressurized walk off a short plank <laughs> into a field of <laughs> because a if you sea miss, of sharks. What is it like for the rest of your days being the guy you missed? Oh, and that's it, Ian. You're absolutely it. If you miss, you'll be remembered more for your miss than you will the one for that anything you did. Everyone, everyone remembers Packy's save, and everyone remembers David O'Leary's penalty. But the mm. other boys that scored, you know, they're like, oh, I think he took one, he took one. Yeah. They're the two that stand out for the miss and the, and the one that won it. And they're the ones that are, you know, synonymous with that with that particular game. But you feel for the lads that are going up there because, as, as Gary pointed out, it is the loneliest place. It is the longest walk you'll ever take. And it only takes you five seconds to get to the penalty spot. It seems like it's five hours. The amount of things that are going through your mind, <laughs> you know, it's like, I was thinking... What happens if I miss? What happens if I miss? My family's here. What about my family back home that are watching? What about the millions around the world? They'll think really? I'm an idiot because I can't even put the ball in the net from... Right. From Sorry. So our, our, our view of our footballers that they are so professional that they block <laughs> everything out, that all they can see is the whites of the keeper's eyes and this is just what they do. It's what they're paid to do. And now what you're telling us now is that you were worried about everybody, about your family, about the millions watching, all those things that we were worried about, you were worried about as well. And you have yeah, to kick the, and all, you have to all kick the, the Irish fans in the stadium. They were probably thinking when I walked up to take one, what is he taking one? But we just, they just wanted enough of us because um, John Aldridge had gone off. There wasn't a great deal yeah. left, and a lot of us hadn't taken penalties before. I mean, I don't think David O'Leary was a penalty taker at any, at any club he'd ever been at, because you know, he would have been well down the pecking order. But there's moments when you got to step up. You know, you've got to feel com mm. confident and comfortable. Was that, was that the highlight then of your Ireland career? Uh, that that game against Romania, or apart from the goals, obviously, like the, the moment yeah, of achievement yeah. of getting through to the to the quarterfinals. Well, and also quarterfinals of the World Cup for a nation like Ireland, the first ever World Cup to get to the last day. You know, when you think football, as you pointed out earlier, football's not always the number one sport. You know, there's yeah. you know, obviously the guy and the, the hurling, and there's other sports now. I mean, it, when I go and do a, a presentation. 
you know, football's well down the list. There's everything now, isn't there? You, you can get your kids to go and, and participate in so many different sports in Ireland. It's absolutely brilliant. And that's why I would heavily recommend go and get your kids out there and try everything because they'll be good at something and something they'll really, really enjoy. But for a, a country like Ireland, the diversity of sports that they've got uh, and for us to get to the last day, I think was a phenomenal achievement. Well, it certainly was, Ray. It was uh, I. Utterly iconic, beyond iconic. There's no words to really describe the impact that it had on the nation. Some people think it kick-started the entire Celtic Tiger. Well, yeah, well, I was younger than you guys. I mean, I was 12. I remember the penalty shootout. I thought I wasn't going to survive it. I remember <laughs> thinking, I am not going to survive the penalty shootout. I could, I could, I could handle when the Romanian stepped up because, like, you know, what happens to him? He's going to miss or not? Or that, you know, if he scores, it's not the end of the world. But every time an Irish player stepped up, I could feel my heart beating through my chest, and I remember thinking, I am not going to survive this thing. I, this is too like when you're 12. It's most important thing in the world uh, they're watching when I was 25 I, I was 25 it was the most important thing to and me I remember, as well I'll tell you this Ray I'm going to embarrass my mother right so my dad who dad said look uh, dad, dad said I can't handle this and he leaves the room right right and he goes uh, tell me if Packy Barner saves one I said tell me if tell me if Packy Barner saves one like I'm going to go dad by the way Barner just saved one like so he couldn't hack it so he left and then so Bonner saves one, right? And then in comes my mother with my, t- with my dinner on a, on a tray. So there you are, son, now. So just before, uh, just before Dave one here, he's going to take the penalty. <laughs> I almost specked it against the wall. So like, why can nobody just focus here? But when it went in, as you say yourself, uh, Ray, like the release and then it was like and, and both channels in Ireland had tuned into the penalty shootout but it actually happened mm. was it was on RT2 yeah and then because at the same time as the 6-1 News right they just switched so the 6-1 News went live so both stations in Ireland mm-hmm. were actually showing the yeah. penalty shootout and as a 12 year old I mean I know it's different when you're old you've other things in your life you've relationships and you've got education and your job worries and bills and stuff when you're 12 all you care about is the Irish football team and you know you, you, look, I won't do you see, Ray, do you see how he's posts. making this all about himself I know yeah well yeah, am, I Ray, no, no, am no, I Ray Hamilton posters on my wall yeah. I won't tell you about that yeah. anyway, Ray, but, listen, I'll ask you I only ask a serious question yeah, yeah. Like, you, young lads and I've done this many times when the Irish play and you've got to be truthful now when the Irish players have gone up one by one to take the penalty you were probably thinking to yourself I think he'll score or he'll miss so go through the players and the ones you thought you were going to score and miss well, Ke- Kevin Sheedy. Ta- well, I tell you, Kevin Sheedy took the first one, but he had missed against Neville Southall in a friendly against Wales <laughs> in Lowndes and then Lowndes wrote earlier that year. So I wasn't mad about him. But then he bashed it over the keeper's head. <laughs> you, uh, I was like, well, the little terrier. You know what I mean? He's. I, I, I know. There's something. A little terrier. He's a cultured <laughs> footballer. How <laughs> dare you? But I, 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 it's I, a disgrace. This guy is a disgrace. Townsend. <laughs> Townsend's a bit of a, a leader. Cascarino. I thought this is this is going nowhere. I thought this is this is a, this guy doesn't have this guy doesn't use his feet. I mean, his only point in his life in, in the in the Irish setup is to head the thing. So I never, I actually had no memory of him kicking the ball before. Never mind uh, taking a penalty. Then Dave O'Leary stepped up at that point because the momentum of the, of the penalty shootout is going our way so much, and he just had to score. I, I was confident with that he was going to knock it home. Um, but David O'Leary definitely because uh, he he was a bull playing centre centre yeah, half. Yeah, good it was, feet. It was you know good quality in his feet. So I I I was confident that he was going to score. But to be honest, I can't really remember that. I was watching it in some party in in my dad's office, and I did it. I was about seven pints of Fosters in. Right, <laughs> Jesus Christ! I was about seven Fanta's in at that point. <laughs> anyway, look, we've taken a huge amount of your time. We haven't even spoken about the world. 
World Cup in, in, in 94 we have a little bit um, that must be a great personal redemption for you you're, like, you're not sure if you're going to get in the team and, and hitting the back of the net and beating Italy 1-0 uh, when you reflect on your entire Ireland career uh, uh, Ray and you know it started a little bit late uh, earlier than I gave you credit for earlier <laughs> earlier than that um, as you say it's the best decision that you uh, that you ever uh, made I, you're such a big Ireland fan now I've seen you at games I, I hear your co-commentary like you really get when, when Ireland are playing and big goals like Shane Long or Mike Oberfemi the other day like you really get sucked into it you are the biggest Ireland fan uh, and it, it's clear in your voice it's still really important to you how Ireland do yeah absolutely of course it is you know it'd be great to see these lads having some of the relative success that we had going to these big tournaments you know there's one thing playing in you know friendlies or in the group stage but it is a different different ball game when you get to the to the actual Euros or the World Cup and you will look how many Irish fans go to these tournaments they absolutely love it and they would love to have uh, the opportunity to do that fairly soon and that's why I'm always hopeful I'm always hopeful that the lads are going to do well um, but something you said earlier, you know, was you said about the team that we had in the 80s and you know early 90s. Every player in our team had won trophies, whether yeah. that would be Packy, Chris Morris, <clears throat> Mick McCarthy, always Celtic. Chris Hutton had won the FA Cup. Tony Galvin had won the FA Cup. Ronnie had won everything <laughs> you can win. Yeah. Um, John Aldridge, myself, Kevin Sheedy had won things with Everton. Frank Stable to me, Arsenal, Man United. You could go through all of us, mm. and all our starting eleven had won trophies. So we had that winning mentality. The lads today haven't quite got that. And that's something that we're looking at next is getting these players into big clubs, into the big uh, finals, getting that uh, experience. And then you can take that into the international game as well. But it'd be brilliant for Stephen and the boys to qualify for a big tournament. I'm sure that's next on the agenda and they'll all be working hard towards that. And football's given you a lot, Ray. I mean, you described your childhood. It sounds like it was it was rough enough. It was difficult enough childhood, your living circumstances in, in Glasgow, moving to London. Uh, you mentioned the economic reasons reasons uh witnessing what you witnessed with the fans got you know and how they were treated but still you know football's been good to you and it's it's given you a good life do you feel football is important oh absolutely huge in my life yeah yeah yeah. it's still not still don't stop talking about it i'm on whatsapp groups with my mates and they're arsenal fans tottenham fans they're getting at each other at the end of the season who's going to make the top four west ham are massive you know, the West Ham contingent are on it. I absolutely love it. And if we're watching a game on the telly, it's all WhatsApp messages and how things are going and he's not good. And I'll be on there with Steve Lomas, John Moncur, who played for West Ham. Yeah. He was with Northern Ireland. And we'll have great, great banter talking about players coming through and what's going on in the uh, in the game today. So you never stop, you know, watching and, and looking and observing. And, and I, I love it. You know, it's, as you say, it's been a huge part of my life for so long. I mean, I, I wanted to be a footballer from as far back as I can remember. When I was four or five, I remember being out in the back. We, you know, like, if, if we could afford the ball between us, hitting the ball against the wall and, you know, how many headers could I do? Many, you know, one touches against the wall. If I'd done right, I'd have to do left. I couldn't do two rights. I couldn't do two lefts. That was my discipline. 
and that was with me from a very very young age right we need to yeah. find that wall gary uh, find that wall make a shrine of that wall this is the, <laughs> the wall that that uh, ray Houghton, you know practices going against england and against italy against this is the wall we should need to do that as a, as a kind of a, a shrine sure i've already done that <laughs> Uh, Ray uh, I think we're just about to run out of time here but it's been fantastic talking to you thanks so much for for doing this really really interesting and illuminating Great, great to talk to you thank you boys thanks very much so thank you for listening. That was the Football Talking Tour podcast with myself, Aon Arirdan, and yourself, Gary Cook. So our Football Walking Tour, you can go on to littlemuseum.ie to find out about the Southside one, footballwalkingtour at gmail.com for the Northside one, and on Twitter, we're at footballtourdub. If something's free, why would you turn it down? I mean, a free haircut from a five-year-old. <laughs> oh, no. Or a free sample of onion paste. Oh. <clears throat> well, then, how about a free tour of your neighbour's new shed? Oh, sounds well. Mm. OK, look, they were bad examples. But how about a free eye test and free glasses from the 69-year-old range of Specsavers with your PRSI? Well, that sounds like something to smile about. Book an appointment or find out more at specsavers.ie.